0: Um, we have been looking at the parables of Jesus last three to four weeks. And today we're going to be Matthew 22. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 22. But before we get to Matthew 22, I want to set the stage for us. And I think chapter 21, Matthew 21, does that very well. Matthew 21 is actually Jesus's, it begins Jesus's final week, what we know as a passion week. We've just entered Lent. Did you guys know this year's Lent started last Wednesday? Like this year, Easter is March 31st. It's coming much faster than we realize. So just want to encourage you guys during this time of... So if you're new to church and you're like, what is Lent? Lent is actually just a preparation time. Preparation, 40 days to Easter. Not counting the weekends, 40 days to Easter. And, and, and this is a way for us to be able to recenter our lives Uh, Some church traditions, they celebrate Ash Wednesday. They mark that day to prepare the Easter of that year by fasting, by praying, going through a reading. And for us, I just want to encourage you guys, let's be intentional about this Lent. But back to the story. (laughs) Chapter 21, Jesus is in his final week with his disciples. They have entered Jerusalem. And the first thing that Jesus does in chapter 21, as he entered Jerusalem for the final time, he goes to a temple a Jewish temple, the main temple in Jerusalem. And, and he enters the temple not to preach, not to pray. He goes in and starts turning over tables of these money changers. It's a dramatic illustration of what Jesus is doing. Um, why did Jesus do this? Jesus was utterly upset by the fact that a place that was meant for prayer and worship had been turned into a marketplace Marked by dishonest practices. There were a lot of people that were making money at the temple. Especially these money changers, they were actually taking a cut. There was a tax you had to pay to get into the temple. These money changers, they were taking a huge cut from the prophets. And Jesus really, this really annoyed Jesus, right? Because this was a place for prayer and worship, and anyone should be able to come and worship, yet they have turned it into an opportunity for business and commerce. So following this act of cleansing the temple, right? He, Jesus goes in there, goes sort of berserk, turning over all these tables, surprising everybody. And after this act of cleansing the temple in verse 14, Jesus does something very interesting. He extends an invitation to those who were at once barred from coming to the temple, the blind, the lame, those who had any physical illness, they were not welcomed at the temple. For centuries, since the time of Moses, Leviticus 21, clearly states, right, no priest with physical illness can serve as part of the priesthood. And sort of this set an a, a unspoken rule around the temple. Right? They were not legally barred from coming to the temple, these people with disabilities, but really it was unspoken rule. No one with physical illness, Dis- disabilities dare to even attempt to come to the temple because of what? Because of the judgmental looks that they would receive from people. But Jesus now extends an invitation to those who were once unwelcomed, and now they find themselves in the temple next to Jesus. So, all of these things that Jesus does in chapter 21, turning over the tables and inviting people that were once barred from coming to the temple. Guess what? The religious leaders that were in charge of the temple and in charge of the people of God at the time—they were extremely what? Great? They were grateful to Jesus, thankful that Jesus was doing his thing. No, they were extremely upset and unhappy with all the changes that Jesus was instigating. You see, Jesus was dismantling their established order of life or who what they thought was good. Right? They said, these people don't have money. These people don't contribute to anything. These people have some kind of physical disability. They can't be at temple. And as Jesus begins to instigate and change things, especially the way they made money, a lot of these leaders made money off what was happening at the temple. So now... These religious leaders want what? They want to kill Jesus. I mean, they've already wanted to get rid of Jesus because of his popularity and things that he was teaching. Now he's, he's top on their list. And being in Jesus, being fully aware of all that was going on, this animosity from the religious leaders, as he's, he's engaging with religious leaders, because they come to Jesus in chapter 21, verse 23. Confronting Jesus, saying, With which authority, with whose authority are you teaching these things? Jesus gives us three parables. Part of this dialogue. Subtle, but not so subtle, if you actually look at these parables. First parable is the parable of the two sons, right? So imagine there's a crowd, there are the religious leaders, and they confront Jesus, whose authority? And Jesus says, Well, you tell me, whose authority are you asking? And there's all this conversation, and Jesus gives three these three parables. The first parable is about the two sons. Anyone have two sons? We pray for you. Two sons pray for you. A father asks his two sons to work in the vineyard. That's the parable, right? The first son initially refuses, but later repents and goes to help the father. While the second son initially agrees, but but eventually chooses not to go. And Jesus uses this parable to illustrate that outward appearances can be deceiving emphasizing the importance of genuine repentance and obedience. And the second parable, following the two sons, second parable is the parable of the wicked tenants. Jesus tells the story of a landowner who is generous, who rents, who rents out his space, his vineyard, leases it to these tenants. When the landowner finally sends servants to collect, to produce what was agreed upon, the tenants not only mistreat, these people that were sent, but what? Becomes violent. Kills these servants. And finally the landowner decides to send his own own son. And what does the tenants do? They, they, they kill him too. And Jesus uses this parable to condemn the religious leaders for rejecting and even plotting to kill the prophets and ultimately the Son of God. Jesus knows clearly what the religious leaders are about to do. And then this is where we get to our parable, the parable that we're going to be going through, the parable of the banquet, the parable of the wedding banquet. But all three parables, parable of the two sons, parable of the wicked tenant, and the the wedding banquet, they all serve with this one message. What's the message? Repent and turn to God. Right? Jesus is not only calling out these religious leaders of their wickedness, but Jesus is giving them opportunity to say, hey, I know what you're doing, but you could actually, it's not too late, you could turn to God and repent. And all share the message, same message. Let's read Matthew 22. We're going to be in the first 14 verses. Matthew chapter 22, verse 1 to verse 14. Let me read for us. This is the word of God. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. This is the third parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves, calves have been slaughtered. I Slaughtered and everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. My eyes are going bad. Okay, I can do this. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the king said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So there are a couple of cultural theological notes that will help us understand the parable a little better before we get into the meat of the parable. One, this idea of banquet, symbol of banquet. Banquets were the most joyous occasion. I know some of you guys are planning your wedding, and you guys are like, I hate planning my wedding, (laughs) because there's so much to do. But really, once you get to the wedding day, it's, it's a beautiful occasion. I remember planning our wedding. I was like, I hate my wife, and my wife's like, I hate Sangmin, right? But, but after all the preparation, all the things, and when we're standing before uh, the pastor who was officiating, I was like, this is amazing, because weddings are just joyous occasions. There's nothing like weddings, unless there's family drama, but that's another story. Um, and Jesus often used imagery of banquets and wedding banquets to represent the kingdom of heaven, this idea of joyous celebration within the body of Christ. So really, as we practice what it means to be in the kingdom of God in this community, part of being in community is being joyful. It's not simply being somber or or, or serious, but there is joyful nature of being part of God's kingdom. Our community group, I confess to you, our community group, like study, is like 45 minutes. Where we're hanging out for like three and a half hours. We're just hanging out, eating, talking, and and that's just... I see that as part of, not that Bible study is not important, but really it's part of the joyous occasion. Every time we gather, there's joy. But for Jesus, it's always about kingdom of heaven. Second, weddings. Wedding feasts were significant social events in ancient Israel, often lasting several days. You know, Indian weddings like last week's, well, Jewish weddings or the wedding at the time, lasted days as well. And invitations to these occasions were highly esteemed, and attendance was considered both an honor, but also a social obligation, right? If somebody invited you to their wedding, it's not like a Korean wedding. They just give you all these invitations so that you, know, you could come and pay the due, right? You, know, you could pay for the wedding. Uh, but the Jewish wedding, it was a big deal because it lasted days. And if anyone invited you, it was a special invitation. So when the invitation goes out, not only once, but twice in the story... The king sends out invitation once, not only once, but twice. The expectation, everyone hearing this story expects the people who are invited would make plans to attend the celebration. Especially given the fact that invitation was given by the king himself. People listening to this story would have been floored by people's reasoning for failing to attend this wedding. So That's assumed here. Now, those two things, let's walk through the parable together. The request, the refusal, and the response. The request, the refusal, and the resolve. First, the request. Verses 1 to 6, this parable revolves around a king preparing a wedding party for his son. Interestingly, if you look at the story, the king is intimately involved in every step of planning Right? King ha- kings have what? They have officials under them. Kings have resources. They don't have to plan the son's wedding. I mean, they could pay for it, they could kind of think about it, but usually, when you, th- when you see the actions of this king, it's very interesting. This king is intimately involved. He plans the wedding, he sends out the invitation, he deals with hostility when there is violence against those that were sent. He reviews the guest at the end of the story. He is intimately involved every step of the way. Right off the start, we get a sense of the type of king that he is. He is no ordinary king. In verse 3, king sent his servants to call those who were on the, the guest list, RSVP list. Like if you're planning a wedding, you know guest lists can get, get really intense, right? Because you have your guest. Lois had her guest. It was like... I don't know, right? But the king had this RSVP guest list. And really, when you look at this parable, term invite or invitation in verse 3 plays a pivotal role in the parable. The invitation represents the essence of Jesus' teaching about not just invitation to a wedding, but invitation to his kingdom. He's speaking of the transformative impact and the power of the gospel. So when Jesus says there was a king who planned a party for his son, sent out his invitation, everybody at the time knew Jesus is talking about not, not simply a wedding, but the kingdom of God, the gospel going out. And notice the invitation again is not extended to a solemn event like a funeral. It's not a funeral that Jesus describes. How many of you guys like going to funeral? No, no, none of us like going to funeral. Rather, again, it's a joyous occasion. Jesus, in calling people to repentance, many assume it is, it is merely just dying to ourselves. When we think about Christianity, it's like, well, we've got to die to ourselves. That's what the preacher says. That's what Jesus said. And that's true. Yet we know death is not the end. Jesus came when, when people ask, Jesus, why did you come? Why are you here? Jesus said, I came to make you die to yourself. No, Jesus said, I came to give you life. But in order to truly find life, you got to learn to die to yourself. Death is part of the process, but really it's about life. This is a joyous invitation. Even though king's doing it, and you're like, oh, man, this king, he might kill me if I don't go, right? There's that element. But this is really a very joyous occasion, being invited by, like, the president of, I don't know if you guys like the president. I I don't know, okay? I don't know if that works, but being invited by a very important person. And you want to be there. That's, that's the vibe. Um, yet in verse 3, as the servants go out to invite the people that are on the king's list, one after another, they refuse to attend the party. They don't even listen. They don't even care to listen to what's happening. If you actually read the dialogue. And the imperfect tense used in this idea of invite in the Greek in the text, suggests a continual rejection. It's not, they were asked once and they rejected. In the context, in the Greek, it's a continual rejection. The king is patient. The king continues to go after and says, would you come to this party? And they continue to reject. And again, I said, I said this earlier, the invitation did not only go out once, but it went out twice. And again, it reveals about the wonderful nature of the type of The king. He is no ordinary king. An ordinary king at the time of the story would have wiped out the whole town if they were like, well, i got to take care of my farm. It's like, your farm? Your farm's not going to exist anymore. Your business? You ain't going to have no business because I'm going to destroy it. That would have been an ordinary king's response. Like, my son's wedding? You're not coming? Forget it. But we see a different type of king. A king who's even willing to send out his own son. That's, that was the point of the parable of the wicked tenant. A, a king sends out his own son and says, hey, go. And we see picture through, through this king, through this extraordinary king, we see picture of God the Father. The one who is patient. Who is long-suffering. One who will not give up. Friends, this is the profound, this is what is profoundly unique about Christianity from all other religion. All the religion requires, what is religion? Religion is man seeking God. Right? Man coming and saying, I want to look for God, I want blessings from God, so I'm going to seek God. That's religion. What is the gospel? The gospel is God seeking out us from the very beginning. From the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, when Adam and Eve sinned against God by taking the very food God said not to touch. God said, you could have everything else, but this one, please, stay off of it. And they took that. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, what is God's response? God's response is not anger. It's not indifference. But it's what? He says, Adam, where are you? God is seeking out. God knows clearly what Adam and Eve had done but God is still seeking out Adam from the very beginning the biblical biblical God that the biblical authors are drawing is God who seeks us out And so this is really important for us to be able to see the difference between what is religion versus gospel gospel is God seeking us out out of his goodness out of his generosity Let's look at the refusal, the reason why, the excuses that they make. The refusal, verse 5. Notice people's excuses for missing the party. We have this whole conversation recorded in this parable. Their excuses for missing the party has nothing to do with how they feel about the king or the son. Sometimes we don't want to go to like weddings because we don't really like them, or we don't really know them that well. It's like, I don't, I don't really want to go, right? But it, that's not the reason. If you look at the reasoning... Verse 5, it says, they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. So it's not that they didn't like the king or the son. It was that what? They were too preoccupied, busy, distracted, enamored by other responsibilities. In fact, their refusal is not made in pursuit of evil. It's not like I'm going to go party and get drunk and just waste away my life. It's not in pursuit of evil, but they refuse to go in pursuit of other good things. Farm, business, responsibilities. Friends, often, see when we think about our commitment to Jesus and our obedience to Him, it's not... These evil pursuits. Often it's not these evil pursuits that keep us from saying yes to Jesus. Instead, it's often the allure of seemingly positive endeavors. It's positive things in our lives that end up becoming the very distraction. The farm and businesses in the parable symbolize very clearly our relationship with what? What is farm? What is business? It is work. Our relationship with work. Ooh, Seoul, Korea, work. Don't touch my work. But really, the parable is addressing our relationship with our work and how it impacts our commitment to Jesus. Our responsibilities. Work as in not only our career, but really other responsibilities. Good things. It's almost like we can be so busy making a living that we fail to make a life. We can be so busy making a living that we fail to make a life. Because if you think about it, we live in a culture, whether you're in finance, whether you're in sales, whether you're in teaching, education, our culture worships being productive, worships. Being busy. Like this, we glorify being busy. So, whenever you meet up with somebody and we're like, How are you doing? How's everything going? What's our response? I am. Got lots of time. Let's hang out. It's what? I am. We can do it. We can say it. One, two, three. Busy. And if you're not busy in this city, something does not feel right. I confess to you, Mondays are my Sabbath, right? So Mondays I do, I go out to a mall, I hang out, I go for a walk, and you know what? I feel really insecure on Mondays, because if I'm at a cafe, it's like me and like 40 ladies. It's like me and like people that are looking for jobs, right? And, and, and you know, Monday I've earned my Sabbath, like, like that you know, in like a unhealthy way, but I should be able to go to a cafe and just relax. But you know what? When I do that, I'm just like, oh, I got to work. So there's something in me that makes me deeply insecure about just chilling out, like relaxing. Because I think we li- we're in this constant pursuit. We live in this culture of constant pursuit of success, career advancement, material wealth. And, and these things trap us in a cycle where the demand of work takes takes over every part of our lives. This reality promotes a mindset that places work at the center of our identity. Not simply our life, but really work becomes a center of our identity. That's why some cultures, you don't ask, like Americans are rude because we ask people, like what do you do? Like first time meeting, what do you do? But in other cultures, they don't because why? It's deeply connected to how people identify themselves. And for many in our culture, maybe many of us in our church, our work has become more than a means to an end. It has become a defining aspect of our own worth. And I I don't present to you that work is bad or work is not good. God has designed us to work. One of the most wonderful things about God planting us in a garden, imagine God created human beings in the garden. What do you do in a garden? You garden, you steward. There was this cultural mandate. God designed us to work. God deeply cares that we are good steward of the things that God has given us. So it's not this conversation about work not being important. I think God deeply cares about the quality of work that we produce. Yet our work, yes, it's designed to be part of our lives, but it is not designed to define our worth. Even pastors, right? Like I have a very unique profession. I get Mondays off. I get to hang out with all these overwhelming number of ladies in the cafe because Monday I don't have work. Uh, but when I talk to pastors and when I think about my own struggle with my own profession because I have a very I realize I have a very unique profession, religious worker. It's the same challenge. Not making ministry or worship. Most of my friends that started out in ministry 15, 17 years ago, I could count like probably like two or three people that are in ministry. They're currently in ministry out of all those people that were in ministry I catch up with somebody, and they're no longer a ministry, because one way or another, we have made even pastoral ministry, which is crazy, can become an idol. Worship can like our, our ministry can become idol, and even pastoral ministry can become something we worship as pastors. Last year, there was an interesting article by New York Times under opinion section called "Why Pastors Are Burning Out." Very interesting article. You know, I, I, you guys get a chance to read it. It's very interesting. In this article, I think it was two years ago, 2022. In this article, there was a study done by Barna Group, a Christian research group, credible. They do amazing work, and their research showed that pastors are shrug- struggling like burnouts like never before. Like in in last like 50 years, the burnout rate among pastors are off are off, char- off the chart. This report was done in March 2022. The percentage of pastors who have considered quitting full-time ministry within the past year sits at 42%. 42% of the pastors consider quitting. And actually, you know the reason why they can't quit? Because a lot of them, they don't know what else to do. They've been pastor all their lives. They can't just like shut down and go sell cars. Younger pastors, particularly affected by burnout, the study says... 46 percent, it's even higher among those that are 45 and younger. And if you read the article and you read between the lines of reasons why pastors are quitting at such alarming rate, yes, there's stress, yes, there's burnout. Yet many of the reasons have to do with not finding enough worth in ministry itself. If you actually read through the reasons, like top 10 reasons, five, half, more than half of them have to do with not feeling like I am feeling worthy. My congregation, they don't respect me. My people, they don't care. They come to church every month, once a month. I don't think I'm making an impact. When you boil all those things out, it's like, well, I can't find enough worth in my work. So I'll do something else. Even pastors. I share this, not for you to have more sympathy towards me, but really for you to consider, even pastors, the ones that should know, hey, you, you're, your job is not to be successful. Your job is to be faithful. We struggle because it's a human tendency. I've done that through planting this church. I've made King's Cross my idol over and over again. I confess to you, this is... it's hard. It's almost impossible. But again, work is a wonderful, wonderful calling, but it's a terrible savior. And that's really what Jesus, one of the things that Jesus was to get at through this parable. So when work or responsibility becomes the center of our lives, what happens? Let's talk about now some of the impact. Dale Bruner, Frederick Dale Bruner is the commentator I've been following through my study in the book of Matthew. He, He says this, He argues, here's a quote, perhaps the original point of the parable was that those who are invited intended to come to the feast after taking care of their business without realizing that the decision had to be made then and there. You see, when when work becomes our worship, what do we say? We say, later when we have time. Later, when we have the energy, how many of us have said to ourselves, later, we'll pray. Later, we'll serve. Later, we'll disciple somebody. When I settle in my career, when I get married, once my kids get a little older, once my kids leave the home, once my kids get married, once, whatever. We've told ourselves all the time, once this happens, then we'll go to the banquet, we'll Obey Jesus. The sad reality is for many of us, our commitment to Jesus has now become a huge distraction to our true pursuits. Let me repeat myself. For many of us, our commitment to Jesus has now become a huge distraction to our true pursuits. Ouch. It's not. Our pursuit of Jesus is the main thing. It's now we want something. And now our pursuit, like G, our love for Jesus has become a distraction. That's the reality for not all of us, but many of us. I mean, think about your own life. Think about being committed to community group one, you know, once, uh, once a week or twice a month. Think about coming to church every Sunday. It seems near impossible to, to, to be faithful to even those things. It's not lack of faith, but there's a real battle to ever increasing complexity of our daily lives. Like when our kids get older, they have their own schedule, they have their own stuff. Right? When we live in a city like Seoul, there's always something happening all the time. And it takes, I, I think it takes immense intentionality to actually be rooted in the liturgy of local body. I think it takes immense, like, I think even 10 years ago, it was like, yeah, we'll, we're committed to church. We'll, we'll attend Sunday service. We'll be a community group. We'll serve. But now, I think it takes Im- immense intentionality or it will not happen. If I had a quarter for every time I talk to somebody like looking for a church last like four years, I'm just like, you know, like you're always looking for a church. I think uh, many Christians today, they're always looking for or always looking to commit to a church, but have not. So Jesus warns us the health of our, through this parable, the health of our faith and commitment to Jesus is not an elusive later, but an intentional present here and now. Friends, it's been a new year. It's lunar new year. We get a second chance at New Year's resolution. And there are some commitments you made before the Lord about this year commitments to serve, commitments to give, commitments to. You know what you did. You know what the commitments you made. Not later. Not later, but now. And verse 6 their disinterest of going to this party took a really, really bad turn. And it was no longer a simple sense of indifference. But if you look at the passage, it, they become violent. These people that were invited, they decide to murder the people that came with the invitation letters. I mean, the story is crazy. It's only crazy if you don't realize who Jesus is speaking to. Right? Jesus, this parable is, 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 is a parable, but it's also Jesus is confronting the religious leaders about what they're about to do. Jesus makes clear that their actions will have severe consequences. So the king, after dealing with these people that murdered his servants, he comes back and the day of the wedding arrives. Verse 8, the king tells his servants, I don't know what he doesn't know what to do. People that he's invited, they're not there. So he tells his servants, go therefore to the main roads. Invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. It's like, let's make the list longer. Whoever you can find. Notice the text says both bad and good. It's not simply good. It's not simply those that are nice, that are worthy, but it's actually both bad and good. It's both worthy and unworthy. Remember, who is at the temple with Jesus? The lame. The deaf. The deaf. The blind, that's the reality of the kingdom of God. They're at the temple with Jesus. People that were not welcomed are now welcomed through Jesus. And the story concludes with the king inspecting one of the guests. Well, all the guests, and he finds this one guy in verse 11. One guy, he comes to the wedding, and he does not have the wedding garment. Oh, in our wedding, we invited, like, the whole church that I was serving at the time. Uh, and I was a youth pastor right before I met Lois, right? And this kid show up. He's, like, a freshman in high school, doesn't know. Shows up to our wedding wearing, like, bright blue T-shirt. And that's okay, right? That's fine. He's a kid. But then he stands next to me for all the photos. And Lois is like, Lois is like this kid, like, she, she's so upset, right? Because all the wedding photos is, like, me and all the people dressed nice. And this kid with, like, bright blue shirt, um, that was annoying, but, but this is more significant, right? Verse 11, this man, by failing to show up in the right garment, this was a big deal. Culturally, this was a huge deal. What is he doing? He's not a, he's not a freshman, or he's not, he's not 15, right? He's, he's a grown man. He is dishonoring the occasion, the invitation, Here, the wedding garment, what does it symbolize? It symbolizes more than a passive, imputed righteousness. When we come to Christ, yes, we are given his righteousness, but it also embodies an active, God-honoring life of discipleship. This man, in verse 11, as we wrap up the story, he serves as a sobering warning to those who approach their relationship with God with casual attitude. Those who profess commitment to Jesus but lead lives largely untouched and unchanged. Because anyone who truly experienced grace will not remain the same. That's the point of the book of James when he says, you say you have faith, show me your faith through your works. What does that mean? James is saying if your faith is genuine, if you truly understood what Jesus did for you, your life will be different. That's why when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? What Paul's saying is, make sure your life reflects the worth of the gospel. Because that reveals that you understood what you have received. Because the gospel is transformative. gospel is transformative, right? If you truly understood, I'm convinced so many Christians that grew up in the church we live unfruitful lives because we don't understand the gospel. We continue to try to live in this mindset of religion versus gospel. That we try to continue to earn our love, affection of God by doing things instead of realizing we have been given this amazing gift. So what is the gospel? And this is where we'll end. You see the man in verse 11, the presence of king without the right attire. Well, Scripture makes it clear that was all of us prior to Jesus' arrival. All of us are like the man without proper attire. But unlike the man in the story, the groom, for, for us, in the gospel narrative, the groom of the party, the guy who's getting married, he steps in by taking off his own wedding garment, and he hands it off to you and I. Friends, that's the gospel. Friends, the sinless Son of God have come To bear the weight of our darkness. The gospel reminds us the one without sin, the one the party is for, the groom, he's getting married, everybody's coming to see the bride and the groom. Yet for us, he takes off the garment and puts it on us. And he takes. On our sin, the one without sin and blemish took on the agony of being stripped, beaten, and being, being bind for us. Jesus on the hill of Calvary, what happened? He was stripped of his clothes. The silence of Jesus on the cross echoes the speechlessness of the man in our passage. As the father turned his face away from the son in that moment at the cross, there was a legal transaction. We were rescued from being casted away to utter darkness like this man because Jesus entered darkness for our behalf. And we know darkness could not consume Jesus. And indeed, death no longer has sting because of what Christ has accomplished. Therefore, if you are in Christ... We have been given new robes of righteousness. That's what we've been singing all afternoon. That we've been given this robe of righteousness that is not our own. right? None other than the blood of Jesus. And no other reality, accolades or accomplishments or career or titles can give us what we have already received through Jesus on that cross. Turn to each other, let's remind each other. Don't kill yourself over work. All right, is, it's just okay. It'd be long, but tell me, don't kill yourself over work. Tell each other, don't kill yourself over work. Because Christ has given you life. Okay, I didn't I didn't prepare that well. Okay, that doesn't flow well, but really that's that's I believe that's the the point of parable. Jesus became the man without the robe in darkness utterly punished. The one without sin because for us, because of us. Can we spend a few minutes praying together? I have a few topics that I want to lead us through. Can we pray for open hearts and repentance? Can we pray for the hearts of people to be open to the invitation of God? If you're here and you're like, I don't know about who God is and who Jesus is, but I'm, I'm open. Can we pray? Can you pray that God, would you open my eyes? Would you help me to recognize my need for repentance, my need to run towards you with humility because life is not found in anything other than you. Can we spend a few minutes praying for salvation in this place? Let's pray. To so pray uh, for our work, uh, work defined more broader than just a job, because some of you guys are students, some of you guys are uh, main caretakers, but our idea of work, uh, if you have a job, if you have work, can we thank the Lord for the opportunity to steward uh, this workplace and, and pray that we would have a healthy idea of what work is. Others of you that are looking for work that are without work can you pray that god would give you wisdom as you navigate your calling in your life um, and all of us to pray lord work is not our god work will not save us work will not define us can we lay those things down and say lord help us to have a right sense of what it means to work as your sons and daughters let's pray together of life, but we recognize work is not life. We recognize work is not my worth, my value. To understand, God, the most important thing is to align our lives with you. Align our lives with your heart, with your vision, with your life, God. You are something you and us, God. Help us be good managers. Help us be good workers, good, good lawyers, good doctors, people that are in finance industry. Help us be Faithful stewards, but Lord, help us understand work does not define us. Can we also pray? Uh, you know, I shared my own restlessness and this whole glor- glorifying busyness. Can we go to the Lord and repent of our pursuit to find meaning through whatever that is for you? It could be work. It could be relationship. It could be the way you look or your hobby. Whatever that is, can we say, Lord, help us, God, to understand nothing is more important than who you are in my life nothing is more important in who you say I am help us to hold on to that truth and help us live in that reality can we pray together let's pray restore us in our identity restore us in our understanding who we are Jesus we see the man thrown cast into darkness Father you did that for us you did that for us even though you did not deserve it you did that for me that for people in this room, God, help us to realize the wonderful nature of the gospel, that Lord, the one who did everything right, lived a life that we could not live, and ended up dying the death that we deserve. Restore us, God. Restore us, God, of our perspective, our view of who we are. Father, thank you for just who you are, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for who you are. You are unlike any other king, unlike any other father. You are Father that we all desire, and we see the wonderful nature of who you are. So patient. So persistent. So gentle and you come after us even when we don't want to be seen even when we don't want to engage you come after us and you cover us our shame our our, our anxieties our insecurities you cover us just as you've covered Adam and Eve in that moment of vulnerability you cover us And so, Lord, would you continue to walk in our hearts, Holy Spirit. And I pray, continue to restore our worship of you, Jesus. Continue to lay down all of our idols before you, Lord. Have mercy on us, Lord. We thank you. We honor you. Thank you for inviting us to such a joyous occasion. Just send me a